For those of you who are parents, you may be familiar with the Bible story book, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. This sermon series is, is going to be following that Bible story book. So if you got kids, or if you're a kid at heart, and you want to uh, read ahead, go ahead and download it on your Kindle, or uh, buy it at a store or on Amazon, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I'm kind of excited about it. So we're going to do an overview of the entire Bible for the next who knows how many weeks, um, going about 30,000 feet. And looking down, this is going to be great. And so we're going to start at the beginning today, Genesis 1 and 2. A splendid home. Now, um, for those of you who weren't aware, the universe is amazingly complex. Time magazine once had a cover article devoted... uh, to this whole idea. What does science tell us about God? It was a lead article. It was written by a non-Christian scientist. His name was Dr. Robert Wright. He considered himself a fairly hardcore scientific materialist. But during the course of the article, Dr. Wright admitted, and this is a quote, one intriguing observation that has bubbled up from physics is that the universe seems calibrated for life's existence. If the force of gravity were pushed upward a bit, stars would burn out faster, leaving little time for life to evolve on the planets circling them. If the relative masses of protons and neutrons were changed by a hair, stars might never have been born, since the hydrogen that they eat wouldn't exist. If at the Big Bang, some basic numbers, the initial conditions, had been jiggled, matter and energy would have never coagulated into galaxies, stars, planets, or any other platform stable enough for life as we know it, and so on. And that is from Time Magazine by Dr. Robert Wright from an article entitled Science, God, and Man. You know, um, beings as complex as human beings don't just happen by accident. If you were walking along a mountain trail and you saw a watch down in the middle of the path, you wouldn't think to yourself, my, what an amazing accident of atoms and energy occurred which formed this cartographic mechanism. You'd probably figure somebody designed it and then left it there. Just so you know, a human being is much more complicated than a watch. What are the chances that we are just accidents of atoms and energy? Charles Darwin himself The man who postulated the evolutionary theory stated in his book, Origin of the Species, on page 154 of the uh, book I was reading, that, and I quote, discovery of a complex organ 
which could not possibly have been formed by numerous, successive, slight modifications would absolutely break down his theory of evolution. Let me say that again. A complex organ which could not possibly have been formed by numerous, successive, and slight modifications would absolutely break down his theory of evolution. Now, a good example of that kind of a mechanism is the cilium. Cilia are hair-like structures that are on the surface of many animal and lower life plant cells. And cilia can wave and they can kind of move fluid over a cell surface or move a single cell through fluid. You might not know this, but germs actually get into your nose just by your breathing in. These germs are caught by cilia in your nose, and then they're expelled when you sneeze. The photoreceptors in your eyes depend on cilia to transport proteins so that you can see. Stereocilia in the ear are critical for hearing. Did you know that there are like 16,000 to 20,000 cilia in each ear? Cilia provide protection from infection and germs. And guess what? None of us would be here without cilia. The cilia are responsible for moving a fertilized ovum down into a woman's uterus. So just as a mousetrap doesn't work unless all the pieces are there, cilia and their motion simply does not exist in the absence of microtubules, connectors, and motors. In other words, it can't be a successive one-upon-the-other kind of a building. They've all got to be there. All the parts still of cilia have to be there at once for cilia to work. And therefore, we can conclude that the cilia are what we call irreducibly complex. And that's a monkey wrench thrown into Darwinian evolution. Now, um, Genesis 1, where we're going to start today, is a simple, but um, it's a majestic account of God bringing order to the cosmos. And it, let me, before we get started, let me just say, this is not a scientific textbook, okay? You're not going to find the physics of creation in Genesis, Nuclear physics, any other kind of physics. You're not going to find it. What Genesis is, in my estimation, really, is kind of like a storybook for children. I mean, how is God going to explain to us what creation is all about? If not, in very simple terms, that the human mind can understand. And here's the deal. God's not trying to tell you exactly the mechanism of creation. So you've got to ask yourself, 
If God's not trying to tell us exactly how the universe came into being, specifically, scientifically, then what is Genesis trying to tell us? Now, I'm not saying that we should abandon all attempts to harmonize Scripture and science. I think that's a great undertaking. But here's the deal. Genesis answers, who are you? Why are you here? Who is God? And how does God relate to the created world? Genesis does not answer your physics questions concerning the universe. Science, on the other hand, explains natural phenomenon. Science does not answer the purpose question about what the cosmos is or why humans are in it. All right? Genesis chapter 1 is going to show us that the world was not always the way that it is right now. There was chaos and it came to order. And the world we see right now isn't the way that God made it. The sin, the struggle, wasn't part of the original plan. Genesis also rejects like other ancient views of how the world was created. You're not going to find any you know, gods and goddesses having contests. Gods and goddesses who married and bore children, which became the earth or something. Giant turtles floating out in some kind of giant sea. Genesis is going to say there's but one God beyond time, beyond sex, who was there in the beginning. He created all things. He created the moon and the sun and the stars, which are gods in other religions. In Genesis, they're just lights. And in the middle of all this, humans have a place of honor in God's creation of the cosmos. So let's go to the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All right. Notice there's something already there. In the beginning. So we're not talking how matter came from non-matter. This rather is going to be how chaos became ordered. And the Hebrew word in the beginning right there usually refers to a period of time, not just a specific point. All right? So it's a period of time. What's that period of time? You're about to find out in the rest of the verses what that period of time is. But somehow, immediately after creation, the earth was formless and empty. In other words, that was unproductive. It was uninhabited. And then we're going to find out how God then organizes the earth. The second part of verse 2 talks about the Spirit of God in the initial stages of, of uh, creation hovering over the world, the not yet world. And, and the, the, the 
Jewish Hebrew picture here is, is of an eagle or a bird, like a hovering over with its wings outstretched. An eagle that would hover over its young in a very maternal, very loving kind of a picture. The world is dark and desolate, covered by water and this mysterious spirit or wind of God hovering over that which is still in chaos. So from the very, very first verses, God's love is starting to seep through the idea of creation. God loves what He's about to do and whom He's about to do it for. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And He separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness He called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. Okay, we've got to start looking at days a little bit different now because there is no sun and there is no moon at this particular point in the creation story the way that God is telling us. All right? Light is a form of energy. And it's produced in a whole lot of different ways. Not just by, by suns and stars, which aren't coming until the fourth day, actually. I mean, if you are a scientist at all, or if you've studied science at all in school, you know that the scientists tell us, the cosmologists tell us, that the Earth started with a big bang. A hot, big bang, which must have made a very bright light, I'm assuming. All kinds of light, all through the spectrum. That light which we can't see, and that light which we can. The Hebrew word for day actually covers a varied amount of, 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 of periods of time. So it can be a 24-hour day. It can be just daylight. Or it can be an indefinite period of time, you know, during this particular day, this period of time. It could be many days. It could be years. But In essence, God is saying here, Let's, let there be a period of light. Day, day one concerns something much more significant, something much more elemental to the functioning of the cosmos than just daytime and nighttime. Here's what I think. On day one, God creates time. God creates time. He separates light from darkness. It's a basis for measuring time. God will use time to bring order of the chaos, or order out of the chaos, which is the cosmos right now. Light is the regulator of time. And will continue to be so when we get to day four. We experience everything in time, don't we? I mean, here's the weird thing. We've got a concept of eternity. You and I can think about it, but we can't experience it. We have no idea 
an eternity where all times are the present. It doesn't make any sense to us. God interacts with us in time, doesn't he? That's the only way we can experience God. How else can you talk about God's long-suffering, God's patience? He enters into our time because he loves us. He can enter it and leave it whenever he chooses. And we believe that even at creation, God had in mind that he was going to enter time in a way that would just blow our minds in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 6, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. You know, pagans, as I said before, regarded these bodies that we normally see in our sky as gods in their own right. And to avoid any suspicion that these things are anything but created things, the Bible makes sure to call them just lights, totally unlike any of the people surrounding the Israelites at that time. Brand new thought in that part of the world. And they were appointed to create rhythms in life by defining day and night and seasons of the year. Let's go on. Verse 20. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. 
So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. You know what's amazing about this is the endurance of DNA. Do you ever think about that? DNA just keeps working. Generation after generation after generation after generation. And guys, ever done the uh, 23andMe DNA testing or done any of that uh, Ancestry.com DNA testing? And they tell you that, oh, yeah, you're part of this haplogroup. There was one woman um, basically somewhere in Africa that we can trace pretty much everybody back to. Do you ever see that? You can scratch your head and go, wait a minute. You can trace almost everybody on the earth that you've tested so far back to one woman in Africa someplace? DNA is amazing. Twenty six. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And by the way, when God says for us to rule over the earth, He does not mean for us to abuse it. Rather, he would have us take care of it the way that he does, with the same loving kindness and attention to detail that we've seen so far in Genesis. God blessed them and said, oh, I already read that. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. We were all vegetarians at one point. 
that's what this is saying. We'll find out later on in the story how and when that changed. But that's what the Bible says. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Um, you know, so... This is uh, the crown point of all creation. Let us make mankind in our image. Who is he talking to? Well, at the very least, he's talking to the angels. Who were already there before creation. We know that from other places in the Bible. This means that mankind, men and women, are like both God and the angels. This confers us with dignity, with responsibility, and with incredible capacity to do things that God would have us do. It's kind of crazy. Up to this point, uh, in Genesis, you wouldn't know this because we're not reading the Hebrew, uh, uh, but the, the Hebrew text, um, whenever God is creating something, the word is Elohim. God is referred to as Elohim. Elohim is a plural noun, not a singular noun. Some theologians think that's a hint about the Trinity. Now, the interesting thing is in Mesopotamian mythology, the gods created uh, men and women to provide themselves with food. Genesis says, no, it's the other way around. God is serving his creation. In the ancient Near East, people were just created as an afterthought when the gods needed slave labor to help provide the conveniences of life, such as irrigation trenches. In the Bible, the cosmos is created and ordered on behalf of the people whom God loves and has planned to be the centerpiece of the creation. In other words, in the very first two chapters of the Bible, it's talking about the relationship that God longs to have with us as people. Love is pouring out, squeezed between every verse in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he wants the relationship between men and women in the context of marriage here to be a reflection of what's going on with God. Let's go on. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. 
So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Again, separating the Hebrews from every nation around them who used the cycles of the moon, the cycles of the constellations, and the cycle of the sun to mark their calendars, to give them the rhythms of life. They didn't have this seven-in-one thing. Or six-in-one thing. This links humankind to nothing except for God Himself. God doesn't want us linking up in our weekly existence with the moon and the stars and the sun. He wants us to link with Himself. He says, this is my rhythm. Six and one and six and one and six and one. And I want you to follow that rhythm. Rest with me. Enjoy Love, worship. The context of this thing, the whole, if you look at it, the Sabbath rest, the seventh day rest, is just as important as sex, the filling of the earth, and as food. Because those are the other two things that are brought up in the context. And so, basically, that's the end of the first overview of creation. But the Bible doesn't stop there because God loves us so much, He's going to devote basically a whole section to men and women. He's going to zero in on that sixth day and say, This is my crowning creation. These are the people that I want to be with. I want to have a relationship with. Not just for now, but for eternity. So I'm going to focus in on these folks. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Or verse... What happened to verse 4? There it is. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Okay, great. Next section. Verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. That's fascinating to me. Just as a side light, there's no rain. It seems like there was no rain until the time of Noah, frankly. They had not seen rain. But this mist would come up from the ground... This water would come up from the ground. It would water everything, and then it would go back down. Fascinating to me. You know, it's, it's so much more efficient, frankly, than rain. Talk to a farmer. You all understand. Verse 7. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And the man became a living being. And the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. 
trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes God just wants to be creative for beauty's sake and beauty's sake alone. I just want to make this tree because it's beautiful. You're not going to be able to eat anything off of it, but you're going to love looking at it, smelling it. I think that's fascinating. In the middle of the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there also. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, we, we know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are. The other two rivers, we have no idea. There's actually, uh, they've discovered from satellite photography, there's an ancient river that dried up like 3,500 years ago, which might have been the, uh, the, the Pishon, but we don't know. Kind of fascinating. So God creates this delightful park full of trees and rivers and gold and gemstones. And what was the most important thing about the garden? He planted it for the man, and he wanted to actually hang out with the man there. We're told later on in Genesis that God would actually walk in the cool of the evening with the man in the garden. He would have conversations with Adam and Eve. And we're told that there's two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we'll learn more about that next week, and the tree of life. Now, here's something that I just want to pass along because I think it's fascinating as well. The tree of life may have been the tree of perpetual life. In other words, we're not sure what is meant by this. We think, some people think that one bite of one fruit of that tree and you'll live forever. But there's a lot of theologians who think that's probably not the reason based on their understanding of the ancient languages. That it's more like the tree of perpetual life, that keep eating the fruit of this tree and it keeps the humans from dying. That's different, right? If there is fruit that God had that was meant to sustain life in perpetuity, then it prevented death from becoming an unavoidable reality. Paul would say, the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 5, that with the advent of sin came death. People were forbidden from being in the Garden of Eden and they couldn't access the tree of life anymore. And so therefore, they began to, their bodies began to die. Of course, their souls died and all sorts of stuff happened. They'll talk more about that next week. It's interesting to me that uh, we have these myths 
that permeate several cultures, the, the fountain of youth. That if you keep drinking this, it'll keep you young. Or the portrait of Dorian Gray. Or the magic apple. Whatever it is, it seems to be lodged somewhere in our consciousness. Let's go on. The Lord God said, verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Did I read the last part? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, just so you know, the Hebrew word for helper there doesn't mean someone who just gives you a hand. That same word in Hebrew is actually used of God later on in Genesis as basically God is our help. In other words, God is the rescuer. God comes and saves your butt. And pretty much is that's what's going on here. The woman comes and saves the man from being lonesome, from being alone. And she's taken from his side Hebrew actually, I mean, the rib, it was probably a, a bunch of flesh and the bone is what they're saying. Matthew Henry, an old, old pastor type, commented on God's choice of a rib to create Eve. And he said this, not made out of his head to top him, not made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. But the idea is that she is of the same essence as the man. That she is his equal, his counterpart, his rescuer. 
If you read the original language and you read the Bible carefully, you cannot get male subjugating female out of Genesis. Nothing here suggests subservient status. Men and women serve in the garden together, in the church together, in the world together. Our problem is that we still have the same problem Christ's disciples had. While Jesus is busy talking about the kingdom, these idiots are arguing about who's the most important. And Jesus reprimanded them, stopped their bickering by making a plan they were to be servants of everybody. Let me make something really clear. One of these observations heard while I was listening to a preacher on the radio back when I was a young man. And this, that's this. God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. Listen to me, ladies. God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. Listen to me, men. Figure it out. God gave Adam a job before He gave him a wife. Don't bring a woman into that mess that you call, I don't know how to make ends meet. I can't afford a place to stay. I can't get from one place to another. I mean, I don't care if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you've got a car or a bicycle. I don't care. Tending the garden and studying and naming all the animals, these were Adam's jobs on the sixth day. I would imagine it took some time. I mean, Adam's created on the sixth day. Later on that day, Eve's created. He's, I mean, he's naming all these animals. I'm thinking, this has got to be longer than 24 hours. There's no way you can fit that in a 24-hour day. Studying each one, trying to figure it out. And I just want you to note that God created one woman for one man. Not many women for one man. Not many men for one woman. The whole Bible is built upon relationships. Built upon relationships. Relationships of God to us. Relationships of us to one another. Primary relationship is God to man and God to woman. Primary relationship. Right? 
Secondary relationship. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Something about the marriage relationship is reflective of God's relationship in the Trinity. Three become one in the Trinity. The two become one in marriage. Here's a section from the Jesus Storybook Bible. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, He was like a new dad. You look like me, He said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all of His heart. And they were lovely because He loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who had made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness and nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. God looked at everything he had made. Perfect, he said. And it was. But all the stars and the mountains and the oceans and the galaxies and everything were nothing compared to how much God loved his children. He would move heaven and earth to be near them. Always. Whatever happened, Whatever it cost him, he would always love them. And so it was that the wonderful love story began. Christians believe that Jesus was there in the beginning. John 1.3 Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John 1.10 he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. Colossians 1, 16. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Hebrews 1.2 But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. Jesus was there in the Trinity at the beginning. We have God the Father. We have the Spirit hovering. We have Jesus there. Three in one. Tonight we're going to take communion. And communion is a reestablishment of our relationship with the Creator. A reestablishment. Jesus came to this earth to reestablish the relationship that had been lost after this takes place. Jesus came to set things back on the right path. The requirement was that He laid down His life for us. Let's remember as we take communion today. Let's be thankful that Jesus, that God entered back into time 
to redeem us, to bring us back to Himself, to reestablish the relationship that He began when He started it all. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank You for loving us, for showing us how much God loves us by the way that You lived and died and rose again. I ask that as we take communion, that we come into closer contact with You who loved us from the very, very, very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.